0: Amen. Coming back to the law of repetition tonight, and that is the outline of the book of 1 John. Chapter 1 is all about communion, fellowship with God. You remember that word koinonia, that for this purpose has John written that ye might have fellowship with the Father, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and his Son. Chapter 1 is about how we have this fellowship with God and the Son. Chapter 2 is what happens when we enter into this fellowship, when we are born again. Chapter 3 is by whom. And you'll notice it begins in chapter 3, 1, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. And it is the Father's doing. Chapter 4 is the chapter of who cares about this fellowship with God and with the Son. Well, I can assure you tonight that John the Apostle cared. And he gave the note of warning in this chapter 4, verse 1. He says, Beloved, believe not every spirit but try the Spirit. And again, remember, this book was written at the end of the first century when there was uh, some history now behind the witness of the New Testament church. There were false teachers that had crept in. There were those that were really opposing the reality of the, the human nature of the Lord Jesus They were sowing the seeds of Gnosticism, and that error troubled the church for 200 years before certain things were settled in the history of Christ's church. Now, this is apostolic Christianity. John was not writing his own opinions. He always wrote in the plural, we saw we heard, we testify. This is our message. And he was an, ap- an apostle writing with that authority. Now, false prophets don't care. They come into the church and whatever, really, whatever wave they can ride, whatever opposition they can raise they will utilize it to their own ends. These were pseudo-prophets. They were false from beginning to end. And of course, they don't care about the person of the Lord Jesus. And so, the Lord's name and the Lord's nature became a theological battleground where who the real Jesus is became so important. Now, in this fourth chapter, you'll notice a number of times the name Antichrist. And John is the only one in the New Testament that uses that term. Now, when we think of Antichrist, we might think of someone who is taking the place of the Lord Jesus. And some would. The Pope of Rome would take that role. He has been dubbed an antichrist in the sense that he makes claims that belong only to the Lord Jesus, the Son of God. But I think in this passage, the word antichrist simply means to oppose Christ, to set out, to undo the things that the Lord taught and that the Lord preached. Now, the heart of the issue here in this Gnosticism was, was Jesus a real man? Was He really human flesh? Did He have a a normal body with flesh and bone and sinews and all the human traits of human personality, emotions, and the psyche of the human mind? Did the Lord Jesus possess all of those things? Well, John, right at the beginning of the book, set the tone and the truth, and he talked about the Lord whom he had heard, he had seen, and he had handled. This is the John that lay on Jesus' breast, and he would have thought, how dare anyone Raise the issue that my Lord Jesus did not have a real human body. Now, there are always those who take this middle compromise line and say, well, does it really matter? Does it make a difference? To John, it made all the difference. If there was no incarnation, if the Lord Jesus did not have a real body then we could not have a Redeemer. If there was no incarnation and our Lord Jesus had no human body, there is no sacrifice for sin. If there's no incarnation and Jesus did not have a human body, then there is no blood atonement, no physical blood. It's just a theory. It's just a metaphor. But we know that from the cross of Calvary and from a real human body flowed real blood, the blood of the God-man. No incarnation, then we tonight have no heavenly intercessor at God's right hand. The prayer I offered earlier, talking about having a strong man at God's right hand, our advocate to intercede for us. All of that is just jargon with no reality. And if the Lord Jesus did not have a real human body, there is no such thing as His physical return in a real human body. All this hope of Christians of a man coming in the clouds, that every eye will see him. It falls flat on the ground. And therefore, John, seeing the issues, he stood his ground, and he contended for the faith, and he really cared. Now, Paul the Apostle would have called such agents of darkness... John referred to them as false prophets and those who were speaking lies. Now, the real issue that affects us tonight is who in this meeting cares. Do you really care that the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, and maybe you call Him your Savior tonight, does He have a real Human body? Does he represent you and me in a physical body at the right hand of God? And is he coming again for you and me? As we go down this chapter, and that's what I want to do tonight, we're going to really do a chapter study on this theme of who cares. And you will see in verse 4 that true converts care. Now, a convert in John's teaching is one who has been born of God, one who knows God in heart, not just in lip profession, but one who is born again and who is in fellowship with the Father and with the Son. This partnership And I went to some length to explain that fellowship is not just talking and getting together, it is this partnership, one with another, koinonia. And all who are in union with the Lord and in partnership with His redeeming grace, they will care. Look at verse 4. Ye are of God, little children. Now that term, of God, has to mean something. What does it mean to be of God? If you are a son of uh, an outstanding figure in a community or in a nation, to be a son of has vast meaning. To be a son of God means that you are related, that you are in partnership with, and in this gospel sense it means you are of the same nature, partakers of the divine nature. And seeing we have some who weren't with us in previous meetings on 1 John When we talk about being partners of God's nature, we're not talking like Mormons, where we will become gods. No, there's a firm line between God and His creatures, and you draw the line in the middle, God is the Creator, we are creatures, we may become godly, godlike, we may have many of the attributes or the characteristics of God in us and working in our hearts, but we never become a creator. We're always creatures on that level. And the holiest man and woman on earth, the godliest man or woman, is a creature. And even when we get to heaven and we spend time with God in eternity, we will still be creatures. And yet the Bible says we are partakers of this divine nature, there are attributes of God that are conferred and transferred to the believer. You are interested tonight in truth, you are interested in justice, you are interested in holiness, power, and various other characteristics that belong to God. But as one that is born again, or born of God, those things are in you, because God has begun a work of grace within your hearts. In verse 4, you'll notice that converts care because they have God dwelling in them. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is He that is in you. This is mind-boggling. This is, is, is beyond our comprehension, that the God of heaven comes to live in the clay body of our natures. This is as big as creation. It's as big as the miracle of Calvary. It's as big as God Himself. It's the miracle of the new birth, being born of God, partakers of a divine nature, in partnership, not just in a theory now but in real spiritual union and communion with the living God. Paul said he called it Christ in me, the hope of glory. That's what a Christian is. A Christian can say, it's not only that I can know from the catechism or from some Bible verse that Christ is real, but Christ is in me. And I know it. And John repeated that over and over again. Ye know that ye are born of God. And are assured ye have confidence. He uses all of these terms. Now let that sink in. God is so great that He fills the whole universe with His presence. And yet He lives in our hearts. I hope you sing from time to time that little song, He lives, He lives. I know He lives, for He lives within my heart. And converts who have the Lord living in them care. They care about the nature and of what men think and say about the Lord Jesus Converts also care because greater is he that is in you that is in the world. Now, the ungodly, the worldling, are slaves to the world. They want to think like the world. They want to walk like the world. They want to look like the world. You just need to travel through an airport, sit at some place where people are passing and going, and you just wonder, they look like they're wearing pajamas look like they've got tattoos and all kinds of paraphernalia, and you just wonder, what world have they come out of? That's the world. They're slaves to the world. But the Christian is no longer a slave to the world. We've got a new mind, a new heart, a new walk, And it manifests itself in so many ways. And it's the gospel that is the controlling power of your life. And it should be. So, born-again Christians are set free from the mastery of the world. You see, we don't live in a vacuum. No such thing as getting saved, being born again, and you just stop doing certain things. Stop smoking and drinking and drugs and bad language and worldly things. You just stop. And that makes you a Christian. That would be an empty vacuum. And your life would be uh, not only unpredictable, but unimaginable. A Christian is born of God. He is delivered from the slavery of the world. And greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You've got a new master now. Your master is the Lord Jesus. He's Lord of your life. And you're living for him. And you're living with him in you, working out your salvation each and every day. You'll notice in verse 6 how John puts this. They are of the world, therefore speak they of the world, and the world heareth them. But not for the born-again Christian. We We will not take the Lord's name in vain. We will not swear with the ways of the world, nor follow their ways. And John, back in chapter 222, he used very strong language. He said, who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ, he is the Antichrist, that denieth the Father and the Son. And so, converts care. If you're a Christian tonight. You care about the name the honor of your Lord Jesus. You want to see Him magnified. You want to see Him honored. And you want to be a part of glorifying the name of the Lord Jesus. That's the reason you're saved. Saved to glorify the Lord. Are you doing that? Did you do that today? things you did, the places you went, the use of your time. What about the week to come? The employment you enter into, the money-making schemes you devise, the friendships you form, the decisions you make. Every one of them as a born-again Christian you will care about the testimony of the Lord Jesus. Now, we'll move on to the second heading here, and that is the faithful church cares. If you look at verse 6, it says, We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us, but he that is not of God heareth not us. Now, who are the us here? John, again, is speaking as one of the apostles. This is the plural language. This is the grammar that he uses because it's apostolic. This is the foundation of the church. What is the church built upon? The apostles and Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. And those who are born of God form the church and the faithful church Cares. Now the faithful church is made up of hearers. The New Testament church is a hearing church. That's why the Lord Jesus says, He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear. The church is made up of born-again believers who are hearers and they discern the truth and they want more of the truth. And here in this verse 6. He says, we are of God. He that heareth us is part of that gospel-preaching church. Now, this gives us a little bit of leeway here to just say something about the kind of church that you ought to be attending. And I don't know each one individually, so I'm going to make a few blanket statements here. Just because there is a steeple on top and just because there's a sign outside that says church doesn't mean that's the place for you to attend, to glorify the Lord and to feed on His Word. I think we have a great example here in this little cul-de-sac. We have, what, one, two, three, four churches in this one little cul-de-sac. I have to again be careful because I haven't been in the service to witness. But knowing the Presbyterian Church of Canada, knowing the Lutherans, that's the church over here, and knowing the Pentecostals, that's the church over here, and there's a few other groups that meet in that building as well, I could not say, take the numbers down and just go to one of those churches in uh, Pinetown Place and you'll be safe. You want a church where you're going to hear the gospel, where you're going to hear the Word of God, read from a faithful translation of the Bible, expounded carefully, not just a lot of shouting and a lot of bluster, but the words set out, their meaning expanded upon, and the application firmly applied. Now, preachers differ. Some are old, some are young, some are very studious, some are more evangelistic and flamboyant, some are really wordy, and others, they just say it once and that's it. You better listen very carefully, you'll miss it. So, preachers differ. But that's not the point. The point is the truth. The gospel that is preached, and you are to be a hearer. The true church of Jesus Christ is a Christ-centered preaching ministry. We preach His deity. John stood firmly for that. We preach His resurrection. We preach His offices as prophet to teach Priest to offer a sacrifice, and king to reign in the hearts of believers. And the true church will have a determination that people who come in through the doors of the church, come under the influence of that ministry, that they are going to, one way or another, week by week, learn more and more of the Word of God and all its truth. And we live for that. That becomes our passion. We sit up at night burning the midnight oil that we may so preach. We pray, we get on our knees and say, Lord, touch these lips, inflame this heart, make this Word to live That men and women who may be dull in spirit and cold in heart will hear words of life that will lead them into the very center of the Lord's truth. The true church cares. Carelessness should be banned from the church. If you're a careless Christian, shame on you if you're a careless Sunday school teacher and you don't prepare to teach those little boys and girls the truth, shame on you. Shame on the deacon, the elder, or the pastor who does not endeavor to set himself to serve the church with determination. Now, every generation has to do this because remember, We're only one generation away from paganism. You don't teach your children the gospel. The devil will. The world will. And they will be lost. If the church misses a generation, the stand and testimony of that church is over. It may still have the church name and the steeple on the roof, but it's no longer a true church. And so we need that determination. The Lord Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. And that is as inclusive as we get. We don't make the way any broader or any narrower than what our Lord Jesus did. You want to know how to be saved and be right with God? The Lord Jesus is the way. He's the truth. And He is the life. And He says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And you, as a Christian, need to be able to sit on a bus, on a park bench, or standing over the fence with your neighbor, With the same passion, may God use me to bring the truth to this lost, darkened soul. In the pastor's room now, it's called, across the hall, there's a big map of the city of Calgary, and there's a few pins just to hold it up, but then there's another pin for the church location here in the northeast. Let me say this church is very well situated. It's not away up in the total far north corner, nor away in the far south. It, it's, it's where number one goes across there, 16th Avenue, we're just a couple of miles north, very well positioned. And there are subdivisions, housing communities all around us. But there are countless souls without the gospel. Immigration is rising, and Northeast Calgary gets their fair share of first time immigrants from all over the world. Does this church care for those souls? Do we really care? Or do we just want to see the church ticking over, paying its bills? being a little decent and respectable, having the facade of a good church? Do you pray in the prayer meetings with earnestness? Do you cry to God for souls? I'm not here often enough to make this judgment, but in my congregation in Cloverdale, I said it quite often, it grieves me when I have people attending the church sometimes for a long period and I've never heard them pray in the prayer meeting. That's sad. Maybe there's someone here tonight and I've never heard you pray in the church prayer meeting. I haven't been to many since... April, what, five or six maybe, maybe not. But you get the message. You get the thrust of what John is saying here. The true church cares. Thanks, Kazia. That woke us all up tonight. Now, we know it. I saw Kazia turning a knob there, so it's not aliens that are breaking in or fluttering over the building. It's something there in the sound system, and we'll get through this. But let's move to verse 7 here tonight, and you'll see that all who have the love of God care. Now, let's just read the verses, and then we'll say a few words on them. Verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, For love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. And this was manifested, the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us, and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, We ought to love one another. That's the test. Now, it's a strange test. It's contrary to what we would naturally think, that if God sent His Son, if He loved us so much and sent His Son, and our Lord Jesus gave Himself to be a propitiatory sacrifice upon the cross, offering up Himself for our redemption, then surely John would say, we've got to love the Lord. But he didn't say, love the Lord. He said, love one another. That's the test of our appreciation of the death and the love of God at Calvary. You see, it's easy to love God because God's perfect. He's holy. He's good. He showers us with blessings. It's easy to say, I want to love God. But it's not so easy, even in the church, to love one another. That's the real test. And in church life, we've got to work alongside with one another. We've got to pray together. We've got to plan together. We have got to cooperate in so many different levels and at the very least have a countenance and an attitude that conveys our happiness to encourage and strengthen one another. And if we are born of God, we care for our brother and sister, It's not, I told you so. I told you that he was a phony. I told you that he was a difficult person. I told you that he was a troublemaker. No, it's that we might see them conformed and changed into the image of the Lord Jesus. In this letter, you, you can't read First John without noticing that John is fixated on this issue of loving one another. He repeats it over and over again. And you remember uh, that he said when he was an old man, when he was carried to the church by young men, he said, little children love one another. And when John, this old pastor-apostle, was asked, why do you keep saying to the church people, love one another? He said, because the Lord commanded it, and when that is done, all is done. If you love one another, you have done your all. And it was John who wrote in verse 12, no man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and His love is perfected in us. When we have loved one another, we have done all. Now, John the Apostle couldn't be any clearer. It's our duty to help our fellow Christians in the good times and in the bad. We ought to be there for one another when they need a pull-up, help to overcome the struggles of the Christian life. Now, as you know, I preach on radio, and I do hours of editing sometimes just to get one program. It takes me a long time listening through things and selecting sections that I'm going to put on radio. And one day I was listening and listening, and I had a wonderful quote from J.C. Ryle on this issue of helping fellow Christians. And I thought later, you know, I could go back and listen to that and just write it out, and uh, I would have that quote. Well, for the life of me, I went back, and I couldn't find it. And you know how it is on on, on audio. You search this little section, that section, and I'm sure it has to be near there. But nope, I could not find it. And the best I could do was to paraphrase J.C. Ryle's quote and I think I've got it pretty close, and I want to give it to you. Whatever a Christian can do to relieve a man's misery and heavy crosses of this sinful world, he ought to do. Whatever lightens the trials and crosses of life for a brother or sister, a Christian must do. And whatever leads a soul into the joy and blessedness of truth and righteousness, and a comfortable walk with God. For that we must be willing to sacrifice our lives. That is what it means to love one another. Putting it short, it's going to cost you time, sacrifice of money and perhaps other opportunities that you might give yourself to serve another Christian, another soul that needs the Lord. Are we doing that? Are you doing that? I have to say that I haven't done it enough. I have missed opportunities. That's always a grief to a Christian when we let opportunities go by and we didn't use that need as a way to display the love of Christ in us. Think of the week that is to come. Do you start in the morning, Lord, give me an opportunity. To be a helper, a guide, an example to some lost soul or some weaker brother or weaker sister. And Lord, give me the grace to use that opportunity and to glorify you. John says, Christians care that we will love one another. Now, there's a final argument in this chapter, and it's all about the judgment day, verse 17. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. This is what makes the gospel always relevant and always urgent. There's a judgment day coming. There are souls around us. There may even be children in our homes. And we tremble because the judgment day is coming. And they are yet lost. And we know that there is a day set that God is going to judge the world. It is appointed unto man once to die, but after this, The judgment. And whether we're in a hospital ward, sick souls and dying souls are headed to judgment. Or whether we're in a classroom with healthy young people, we're talking to souls that are headed for judgment. And whether it is a congregation in any part of the world or the mission stations of the world, We are seeking to reach those that are headed for judgment. And Paul said, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And therefore we care. This gospel matters. It matters. Even though a person's living in a beautiful home, driving uh, a nice BMW or Mercedes, and all is going well in life, it matters that we take that man or woman, the gospel. The rich need Christ as much as the poor, and maybe harder to reach, because they don't want to consider the judgment. Job wrote, because there is wrath, beware lest he take thee away with his stroke, then a great ransom cannot deliver thee. You know the Gospels, you know that the Lord Jesus backed up, that the Son of Man will appear, that He will separate the wheat and the tares, the sheep from the goats, and there will be a judgment. And that day will be a great separation of men's souls. Now, verse 17, I want you to notice how John puts this. Herein is love made perfect. Now, perfect there would mean mature. It is at its peak that ye may have boldness in the day of judgment. Christians do not fear judgment day. We will have the righteousness of Christ. Romans 8, 1 will speak for me. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. And as we stand before that white bema seat and we see the separation of the world, the child of God is saved, is safe, and soon to be ushered into eternal life with the Father. Herein is our love made perfect, and we have boldness on that judgment day. Because as He is, so are we in this world. We care tonight. Because my children need the Lord Jesus. We have a son that needs to be saved. I care. Buell and I pray every day for him and his wife and children. We all have loved ones that need the Lord. We care. The one thing that we must be above everything else is a Christian who cares. If you say to me, preacher, pastor, I don't care, I'm going to be very grieved, very saddened. You don't care that your friend in this church is burdened for family? You don't care that your neighbors are hostile to the gospel? You don't care that our schools are rife with the devil's doctrines? All Christians, And when we see a brother or sister weak and stumbling, we don't say, I told you so. We care. Now, please take that to heart tonight and ask the Lord to make you the most caring Christian in this church. If we're going to have competition in this church, let's have it this way. I want to be the most caring man or woman, in this church. I want to be knowing for my caring spirit. No anger, no retribution, no revenge, no looking over my shoulder, but an open heart and a readiness to help. We care. Let's ask the Lord to work that in us tonight. Let's pray. Oh God, our Father, we come to a solemn moment in our meeting. And this chapter is filled with exhortations, and we confess our weakness to fulfill them. Lord, I pray that you will make me a big hearted pastor. Lord, forgive coldness, carelessness. And I pray for each brother and sister here tonight, regular or visitor, that we will truly desire more and more to be like our Lord Jesus, who cared, casting all our care upon Him, for He careth for us. Lord, make this a church that stands out in Calgary. As a place where God's people care for souls. Where the elderly are strengthened. Where the new Christian is guided. Where there is none to cause a brother to stumble. Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit will enter into our hearts this hour. To change us and conform us to what we ought to be. We pray for your blessing in the week to come. We pray that you will open up those opportunities. We pray that we will grasp them with gladness to serve the Lord. So hear us, answer for us. In Jesus' name, amen. We have a closing hymn. It's 554. 554 Take the world, but give me Jesus. All its joys are but a name.